People come to Twitter because of the work done by the verified blue checks. You have to protect the verified blue checks at all costs. You know, when you offer that level of integrity to anyone, then you've just literally turned the marketplace upside down overnight. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, April 10th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly joins me to talk about how Twitter Blue maybe could have worked instead of becoming a disaster of a product update for Elon Musk. And I get John's thoughts on whether news organizations are making the same old mistakes in their coverage of Donald Trump as he runs for president again, or if those worries are, like Trump's hair on a tarmac, a little overblown. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday, and I'm joined today by John Kelly. Uh, John, I guess we get to have a little break from the soothing tones of Jim Nance now that the Final Four <laughs> March and, and the Masters are behind us. I don't know when Nance is going to come back, but I presume he's just got a great spring and summer planned. He'll probably go to like St. Bart's. I don't know. That guy's got it made. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Nance has a pretty good life. I think Nance has a new family. Has a, I think that's the, the parlance for it. Uh, younger wife, very, very young kids. Um, hangs out with Tony Romo a lot. Bill Simmons has a great line for listening to Nance, either on a Sunday at Augusta or like during a Peyton Manning Super Bowl. He calls it a, a Nance-gasm uh, when you're, you feel that buttery voice and you almost don't know what to do. But yeah, we're going to have to wait a little while, probably till the fall. But I actually mean to ask you, Peter, we're, we're now entering countdown zone. I'm sitting in my home office now looking at the Katie Warshaw, Peter Hamby, save the date. We are T-minus a month and change out from the wedding of the century. You look great and fit and cool, calm and collected. Are, are there? Um, can you briefly explain your, your mind state right now? Are, are you just looking forward to eons of, of marital bliss and, and tax benefits? Uh, both of those things. Yeah. I would say, um, unlike Jim Nance, I've only done this once. So (laughs) (laughs) being engaged is really nice. Being engaged is really nice. It's been wonderful. The sprint, the final sprint to the wedding though, with like getting organized, there's just lots of little, 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 little things that add up and make it very busy. So we're trying to like weed whack a few things a day out of the way to make our, Mm -hmm. Make ourselves calm heading to the winning. Could not be more excited, though. Super pumped. Can't wait for you to be there. It's going to be a blast. Thank you for saving the date. Yeah, we're a month out. 
<laughs> I want to start, John, with something that Baratunde and I talked about a little bit last week, probably from a more like academic lens, which is, I love my conversations with him, by the way, about tech. I feel like we get into some good stuff. But on the topic of Twitter and Twitter Blue, I feel like it'd be a good opportunity to ask you as a founder and media executive, obviously lots of news organizations declined to pay for that blue check mark. Um, you know, the New York Times, CNN, Vox, et cetera. But take us inside the mind of a leader of a newsroom. Like, why would we or why would any news organization not want to jump on board with this payment plan, which feels like it's falling apart before our very eyes? Yeah, you know, I think that to zoom out, it's a really evolving, volatile situation. And I think that the first thing you have to do is make sure that you have a plan that takes into account the volatility. And when this was first previewed months ago, I, you know, I went on the record with uh, Oliver Darcy at CNN to say that we were open to considering paying if that's what our journalists wanted. If the value of the years of success in the platform was something that they wanted to take with them and, and a blue check was part of that, of course we were open to it. That seemed like good business to me. But it now seems like the value of being verified at Twitter is going in the other direction because the people who we predict are going to pay for it are people who who don't have that sort of authenticity. And that actually, the way we look at the marketplace now, it may be that a blue check actually like kind of puts you in the, in, in the wrong idea marketplace. Mm. And so that's why we decided that we're not going forward there. And I think on the higher level, you know, usually what happens when these markets change is that there's a first mover. The New York Times was the first mover here that decided that they weren't going to pay for gold, which is about $1,000 a month mm. to be accredited as an organization. And, and they made the decision before we'd even thought this through deeply. And I think that we had gold. I don't believe we paid. I mean, we didn't pay for gold. Um, so we weren't going to pay for gold. Twitter is valuable to us in many ways. It's a great way of communicating the work that we're producing at Puck. And it's also a great way of marketing the work we're doing to onboard new subscribers. And also, just for what it's worth, and we, we've kind of talked about this offline, this business model should be the right model. Like, part of why Twitter was such a terrible place for so long was that there was minimal verification of people. And that I do believe deeply that paid platforms are better than non-paid platforms. I mean, you know, like just what do you think is better, Netflix or YouTube? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The quality um, and differential is very, very real when people are willing to open their wallets for something. But obviously um, execution matters a lot. How would you structure this product in, in such a way where people like us or like individual journalists and or or creators and newsrooms are both paying for verification and some other product updates while also maintaining some veneer of moderated credible content even sure. though that that was never really the case with Twitter but how would you structure it well, I think there's no question, and I think Galloway's actually been sort of early and often on this point, that if you've amassed a large following on Twitter, that's a business channel. And uh -huh. if you're uh, an operator or a, an operator of ideas, would you gladly pay $8 a month, you know, less than 100 bucks a year to maintain that communication channel and potential um, commercial channel? Like, no question you would do that. Are there some benefits 
to that membership that you would reveal. Yeah, sure. And there are all kinds of, uh, I imagine, technological and product benefits. Maybe you have connectivity to other people. Maybe there's some sort of upper tier. You know, I mean, they tried, they tried a lot of this. Like, it wasn't like, the, I'm not coming up with a novel idea here. But, but what they you know what they did do unfortunately was they took all the sort of sober elements out of this and they cheapened the platform overnight as as Musk needed to as Musk had to worry about his debt load and they tarnished it considerably and they offered unverified people the chance to verify which is basically it's like when wild wild country that old documentary when they offered the the homeless people two beers to go work on the compound and, and boy guess what happens the inmates run the asylum so if you are running Twitter, the most valuable asset you have is your blue checks, right? Like the thing that's made Facebook and Uber and Airbnb the most extraordinary business models of the last quarter century is that they didn't have these enormous fixed costs, right? Facebook is a media company where you pay for the media, where you you're the, where the creator is the one making it. They don't they don't pay journalists and and filmmakers, right? Like mm-hmm. Uber doesn't have to pay for the cars. Airbnb is not paying for the hotel room. Like these are extraordinary uh, out of the box models. People come to Twitter because of the work done by the verified blue checks. You have to protect the verified blue checks at all costs. And frankly, and they know that too, and they would be willing to pay for that. I think that I think there was real openness because they felt like they'd have better communications with their audiences. You know, when you offer that level of integrity to anyone, then you've just literally turned the marketplace upside down overnight. And mm-hmm. Elon Musk has sent people to outer space like he's building a subway tunnel across California. Like, yeah, yeah, we, the, the guy's smart. This was a stupid decision. This was like just bad, bad, bad business. Yeah, I mean, he's a hardware guy. And this is media <laughs> slash social media. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think what, this is one of the main ways you convinced me and, and maybe my colleagues to come to Puck was like, you said all of us journalists have been giving away our insights, yeah. good ones at least, for free on Twitter for 10, 15 years. And oftentimes we have a better individual connection with our audiences than our parent news organizations. And so it's like creators, influencers, you know, you could be like a food influencer or like a bikini girl on Instagram, like whatever, like they monetize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Journalists are like so beaten down and conditioned to like working for peanuts that it's like, well, here's a scoop I'm putting out on Twitter for free. And you know, this is a slightly different conversation than Twitter, but I'm glad you planted that seed in my head because, I, you know, journalists do deserve to get paid for the quote unquote content they create. And you know what? I'm glad you brought this up because your conversation with Baritone Day was great. I, I learned a lot from it. And he made a, a one point that actually, after I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, th- this was inevitable. The the creators who are the ones who really add outsized value to the platforms, they're going to go hunting for the platform that makes the most sense for them. And maybe that's Substack, maybe that's Instagram, maybe that's somewhere else. The the platforms that help the creators monetize are going to have outsized value on their own. I -hmm. think that this sort of arc of Twitter, like we discussed this before, it's uh, just this this cycle of social media. And, you know, you can see when when the inmates start running the asylum, like that's when you kind of enter Reddit territory. And it's just a very different value proposition for the business. Any uh, any great CEO will tell you it is 
you got to start like at the top of the mountain and then you can figure out the concentric circles and, and, and go down market. If you think about Uber, it started as black cars and now it's, you know, basically a, a logistics company like UBS or DoorDash. Now under Musk rule, like it's starting at the bottom <laughs> with everyone out there. There is no way, I think, there's just, I think it's, it's gravity. There's no way that it can scale up and be credible again to an audience. I think that's just kaput. And I'm sure that, by the way, because of the, the vindictiveness of, of management too, that they're going to listen to this podcast and all of a sudden we'll find out on on, on Tuesday that we've been like delisted or something. So um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll, let, let's, let's roll the dice. I think I like unexpected byproduct of the sort of withering of Twitter right now. And it's like increasing irrelevance in a lot of ways and, and the, the, the clunkiness of the product itself. And, and Galloway also made this point on Pivot and so did Kara. Like, I think a lot of us who have been Twitter addicts for a very long time and a lot of journalists and people in politics are kind of like spending slightly less time on it because it's not as much of a useful experience and they're realizing, oh, I don't really need to be here as much. <laughs> and like, that's an, that's an okay, that's an okay outcome. Um, Hey, I want to take a quick break, John. And when we come back, I want to ask your take on the media coverage of Trump's arrest and the Trump show. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast welcome back to the powers that be everyone john dylan and i chatted a little bit last week from his position as a media observer about how the cable networks covered trump last week when he was arrested in New York. The static live shots of him taking off from Florida, like Fox News was following his motorcade through the Palm Beach. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, one reporter tweeted they thought CNN had a camera on a speedboat to catch a shot <laughs> right. of, of from the Hudson of Trump landing. Anyway, so there's a lot of hand-wringing, especially on Twitter, especially on the left, that like, the media is doing it again. They're giving Trump a microphone. This is crazy. Um, I know people in the Biden White House were like, enraged by this too because they couldn't get anything on tv that day mm -hmm. big dumb generic question is the media falling into the same trap that they did in 2015 and 2016 when they just gave all their programming over to a guy and helped him get elected president 
You know, I don't want to sound overly philosophical about this, but I, I have been thinking recently as, as we've been preparing for the indictment and the arraignment, what did we expect people to do? You know, yes. the, uh, <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you remember back in those in those crazy days of November 2016 and and then through the inauguration, uh, saw Sean Spicer's leaving his show on Newsmax. I was just laughing at what a jerk that guy was. Remember inauguration day? Look at everyone showed up. There were a zillion people here, you know, looking at the the, the patches of the lawn like the the mantra for everyone was don't normalize this. This isn't normal. Like we have a president who you know, uh, is this sexual creep who's gone through all kinds of bankruptcies, who, who's stuffing his children in cabinets. Don't normalize it. And um, part of the anger at old school CNN and democracy dies in the darkness, WAPO and all that stuff is um, valid, but also like they didn't normalize it. And we have to remember that too. Uh, people, you know, at least unlike other banana republics, we, we were very aware in this country that, that there was a madman in charge. So, I'm actually like willing to give Chris Licht a major pass. I, I think that it would have been truly deranged, and he actually would have lost the room if they treated the indictment and arraignment of Trump as just like a small, you know, Midwestern tornado or something. Like that would have just been been absolutely unimaginable. But it's going to be interesting at this point moving forward. Like we are captive to a very, very real, I think, showdown. We've talked about this before between you know Trump and, and DeSantis like it's this incredible cold war in the Republican Party and Trump is going to be attempt to be in the news cycle every single day so mm -hmm. they're you know we're, we're just getting warmed up here yeah I mean the thing I told Dylan and if you're listening to this too I hate to be repetitive but one I totally agree with you that this is historic how else are you going to cover this it solves two problems for these cable networks at once yes you get ratings but it's also not like an empty Trump podium during a campaign event when you could be airing like a Bernie Sanders or a Hillary Clinton event, which is what happened with all the cable networks back in 2016. You know, when the Democratic primary was still at least like notionally competitive, they mm -hmm. were just covering Trump because it was, you know, their ad rates were going up. And I actually went back and looked because Dylan and I chatted about this the other day. It's become kind of a dismally remembered talking point that Trump got a billion dollars of free media from <laughs> the TV networks. I went back and looked it up. It was actually 2 billion by February of 2016. So which suggests that like by the end of 2016, Trump was getting like $4 billion of free media from <laughs> not just one, from all the, the news organizations and TV networks covering him while also only spending a real pittance on paid media that, that cycle compared to other candidates. Anyway, it's just like they aren't going to be covering Trump every single day inside and out like they did also with the same kind of credulousness that frankly a lot of like mainstream news organizations did in 2016 you mm -hmm. know i met like mark halperin like riding around on a zamboni with trump and like people oh, taking selfies with him and like trump's helicopter and like letting him call in and i remember the media defense at the time was like well trump at least wants to talk to the media unlike hillary <laughs> like that was their defense so anyway like it's very clear that the mainstream non-Fox News press has not necessarily figured out how to cover Trump, but they're like not going to treat him with kid gloves in the way they did back then. And then the next day, CNN is covering like 
Israel and Lebanon, you know, like it's not it's not like this is like all Trump all the time. And I don't think it's going to be this stuff will certainly peak as we get into the primaries next year and all through a presidential election year. But I just think the tone of the coverage is different. I do think the volume is going to be different. I did think the like all the like Brady Bunch screen, like live shots of every network Mm -hmm. covering the like Trump Force One landing was a little over the top. Um, so yeah. that's, my, that's my only like note of criticism there, I think. Yeah, it's going to be hard to imagine uh, the, the, the purpose of some of these vessels after this, this really does end. I do think, I'm speaking broadly here without any data, but maybe I shouldn't do, but the, the ratings obviously jumped and then dipped Yep, yep. for Trump across the board. And you do see the overlap in the Venn diagram between responsibility, editorial need, et cetera, and, and business in a lot of ways. But also, the use case has changed. The cable news used to be a, a sort of news junkie portal for people uh, when, when this medium started, you know, 30 years ago. And then, you know, before our very eyes, uh, kind of post 9-11, Roger Ailes, Bush era, it became... a Entirely political, with the exception mm-hmm. of you know, I mean, mm-hmm. CNBC and, and and Fox Biz do their own thing, and 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 it's a, it's a much smaller audience, although and, and, and getting smaller and smaller. It's just hard to figure out the use case sometimes uh, post Trump for these vehicles, and we know that as much as they want to say that it's about being there for big international events and having credibility and all of that, I'm on the um, I'm on the buyer's bandwagon here that. They are arguing against themselves in in many ways. This was a uh, I think we we saw last week how Trump didn't just sort of siege that medium. He he sort of he sort of seized it for good. Oh, for sure. And I think I think your point about the relevance is like we lose sight of how quickly the our attentional direction is moving away from the TV screen. I mean, I think Nielsen in twenty eighteen said that people were spending about like three hours, four hours a day, roughly with TV screens. And Mm -hmm. today that's down to like two hours and 45 minutes. And so that's over a course of like four or five years. And it is a very hard line down on that graph. And it's just like, you know, um, this also sort of graded on me too. When like, like when the press covered the Comey announcement at the end of the presidential in 2016, and like everyone on Twitter was blaming the New York Times for putting it above the fold <laughs> as if people were yeah. like make rendering their decision. By the way, putting a story above the fold is a indication of that newsroom's judgment every day, what they prioritize, what they value. I get that. But the idea that like consumers and voters were like making decisions based on like, <laughs> oh, well, the New York Times put this above the fold and they covered it a lot. The vast majority of voters like don't fucking read the New York Times and the vast majority of voters today aren't making decisions based on how the TV networks covered Tuesday, uh, last Tuesday in Trump's yeah. arrest. I think I think the the problem in 2016 was the duration and volume of coverage. And I just don't I, I, I might be wrong. I just don't think that's going to happen in the same way that it did back then. Yeah. One point that you're um, indirectly raising is that actually the viewers tend to view the media in many ways similar to actually I think a lot of people who work at these big companies uh, on the inside view it which is um, it's easy to blame individual media companies for uh, what are actually much larger 
sort of systemic business problems here. And, you know, the, the, in many ways, the, the media, I think, is, is following events. It's, it's not dictating them. And mm-hmm. that's making everyone unhappy. Sorry to, to mm-hmm. burst bubbles, but that, that's, just the, that's just the truth. Well, I'm happy that I'm here with you, John. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I hope everyone's enjoying springtime. John, thanks so much for doing this. I will see you in the Slack. All right. See you there, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. 